Reflections on the Bible by Gil Bailey Narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 2 He comes back to Egypt and he begins galvanizing the Hebrews. He begins telling them, You are somebody. You are somebody. I want to tell you about Abraham. You are somebody. You're not nobody. You're not slaves. Don't be slaves. Don't act like slaves. You've got Abraham. And he galvanizes the, the, the Hebrew consciousness together. Now, this couldn't happen unless something else were also happening. And that is, as, as I imagine it, the Egyptian cultural cohesion is weakening. Because subcultures don't discover their identity if the dominant culture is still maintaining its gravitational field, if you see what I'm saying. I imagine that the Egyptian cultural field is weakening, and so it's possible for this new identity to be established. Now, there in the in the story, Moses asked to go to the wilderness uh, to worship Yahweh, who's a wilderness god, and he's told that he can't. And then the plagues come. Now, I would imagine it's slightly different. The plagues. Most people now agree. Most scholars now agree that the plagues are slightly mythologized versions of fairly standard difficulties encountered in the Nile floodplain. You know, the. I mean, we could take them off, but um, but let's take them for the time being as being natural occurrences, theologized later by the Hebrew scribes, uh, who who understood them as coming from Yahweh. But I would imagine that what are called plagues have already begun to occur, and that Moses seizes the moment to go to Pharaoh and say to him, let us go worship our God. It may improve the situation. Moses, being a a strategic genius as well as being a religious genius, understands there's an opening here. These locusts are blowing in from the desert, right? Ours is a desert god. Let us go and worship our de- desert god. It may help. Now, I, that's, how, that's my feeling about it. Let me quote the text. Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said to him, This is what Yahweh, God of Israel, has said. Let my people go so that we may go and keep a feast in the wilderness in honor of me. Who is Yahweh, Pharaoh replied, that I should listen to him and let Israel go? The God of the Hebrews has come to meet us, they replied. Give us leave to make a three days journey into the wilderness and offer sacrifice to Yahweh our God, or he will come down on us with a plague or with a sword. So the text says they tell Pharaoh that this God of theirs is a plague God if he is provoked. I think what may have happened in actual fact is that the plagues have, a plague or two has already occurred, and Moses has gone and said, uh, Yahweh is known to cause plagues, let us go and worship our God. It may help. There's no reason for you to believe my version of it, but I'm offering it to, as a provocation. There's this story about Moses and Aaron being asked by Pharaoh to come in and end the plagues. But it's curious, they're not asked to end the plagues. The servants of Pharaoh are asked to replicate them. And one doesn't know what to make out of this story except what I think comes of it, is that after the fourth plague, all the responsibility resides on the Hebrews. And I think what may have happened here, hypothetical, is that the Pharaoh asked all of the power people, Moses being one of them, to get to work on this plague problem. And somehow in the course of that, the cause of the plague 
was narrowed down to the Hebrew people. They became, if you will, the vector of the disease. They're the problem. Somehow they and their God are at the heart of this problem we're having. And my suspicion is that Moses anticipated and in some way encouraged that estimate of the situation because he begins to prepare his people to understand their expulsion from Egypt as a good thing. I think he sees it coming. I think he says to them, don't worry, our God is a desert God. The desert out there, the thing that you have, for the last 400 years you have feared, the thing that the Egyptians have always threatened you with, is nothing to fear because our God's out there. So if they kick us out of here, don't worry. It's not an end, it's a beginning. I think he's preparing them for this, the expulsion of, of them. They're finally expelled after the death of the firstborn. Let me try to do this as quickly as I can, uh, and I'll come back and defend it in more detail if you force me to. This is the death of the firstborn in Egypt. There are two versions of the death of the firstborn in Egypt. In each case, they are the, the firstborn are detailed. The first has the firstborn of Pharaoh, the firstborn of the maidservants at the mill, and the firstborn of cattle. And the second version of the list is the firstborn of Pharaoh, the firstborn of the prisoners in the dungeon, and the cattle. So there's a substitution in the second list for the prisoners in the dungeon for the maidservants at the mill. To make a long story short, what I think has happened in Egypt is a medical plague. Most scholars think death of the firstborn is really a medical epidemic that's theologized later by the Hebrew people as a God sent, and they understood that all the people that were dying were firstborn. Firstborn is a sacrificial term. See, God said, take your firstborn, Abraham. That's what God, the, the gods of the Levant would have done. They would have said, take your firstborn up to the altar and sacrifice them. So firstborn is a sacrificial term. Seen through the eyes of the Hebrews, a medical epidemic is eliminating people and cattle in Egypt. But in actual fact, what I think may have happened is that the medical epidemic takes the life of a, somebody in the Egyptian royal house. Firstborn or not, doesn't matter. It's theologized later that. And it gives the pharaoh the opportunity to try to reconvene uh, Egyptian cultural consensus using the most powerful tool he has available, namely public human sacrifice liturgically performed in the motif that was so common to the ancient Egyptian system, which was funeral. So now imagine that what's happening at the roundup of the firstborn is really the rounding up of the maidservants in the, at the mill and the prisoners in the dungeon who are going to be either buried with the member of the royal household, as often happens, or sacrificed at the funeral service. I know this sounds strange. Just imagine that as the backdrop. Now, inside the camp, Moses says, we shall take a lamb and substitute that, and we shall eat, we shall sacrifice a lamb, and eat the lamb, and paint our doorposts with the blood of the lamb. And the backdrop for all this is an elaborate sacrificial ritual happening in Egypt. And the point, the point Moses would be making is that we are doing it differently. We do not sacrifice human beings. We are coming together as a people. And he Undoubtedly, at this point, the, the story of Abraham and Isaac would have come into play here. We do not do that. We're Hebrews. It's clear that Moses was a very ethical leader. 
We're Hebrews. We do not do that. And we will paint our doorpost with the blood of the lamb. Perhaps because the Pharaoh is already afraid of the Hebrews because their God has brought all these plagues. He doesn't want to risk further harm by tampering with the Hebrews. And the standard way of eliminating someone that you can't eliminate outright for fear that their sponsoring deity might avenge them, the standard way of eliminating them is to expel them into the wilderness. And they expelled the Hebrews into the wilderness. Now that sounds uh, concocted, but it doesn't matter whether you believe that, does or what I believe. All I want to do is begin to shake things loose a little bit and have us imagine the original point of Hebrew consciousness being a conscious determination to go in a different direction, not to engage in human sacrifice, uh, but to substitute an animal like Abraham did and like Moses, I think, does at the first Passover. After, they, after the Hebrews get out of Egypt, it's clear that there is a conscious concern with establishing shared cultural rituals that avoid human victimization. That's, that's very clear from the text. Let me, I'll quote some of the text and we'll go back and forth. The Hebrew Bible is awfully candid about this, much more so than the mythologies of other culture groups, I think. Hardly are they out of Egypt when you read things like this in the story. Yahweh speaking says, Consecrate all the firstborn to me, the first issue of every womb among the sons of Israel, whether man or beast, this is mine. Now that's a very primitive text, and you'll notice it mentions no substitutions. It's Yahweh saying, now when he says consecrate, let's not think he's talking about something, you know, like pouring of water or something like that. He's talking about sacrificing. Or, let's say this, in the original setting, that's what that meant. You take the firstborn up here, bring them to the altar, sacrifice them, and then you will have many more. The firstborn of your humans or the animals or the first issue of the crop. But shortly thereafter, in the same passage, it says, of your sons, every firstborn of men must be redeemed. Redeem is a technical term, which means a substitution. So first thing is, I want them up here on the altar. And we're reading the text as though we are participating. I want them up here on the altar. And then we're holding our breaths for about 10 verses. And then it says, but the humans must be redeemed. You can bring a goat or a lamb up instead of a human. So we think, whew, good. But the, notice that they're both in there as a way of indicating where we're coming from and where we're going to. The primitive, unadorned text sits there for ten verses and then the mention of substitution. So it's a way of alerting us to what's happening here. Moses takes them to the mountain and goes up the mountain and gets the Decalogue, the commandments from Yahweh, and comes down the mountain and reads the Decalogue to the people. Now, the way the redactors have put this together is interesting because there is the epiphany where God reveals himself and all are awed. And then there's the Decalogue. And the way the Decalogue has been set into the epiphany scene, the last verse describing the epiphany, the revelation of God's presence, comes after the reading by Moses of the, of the Ten Commandments. So 
for instance, the last verse describing the epiphany is this. All the people shook with fear at the peals of thunder and the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet and the smoking mountain, and they kept their distance. So there's a sense of something awesome has just happened. Well, what has happened in the text, if you say, what's the verse right before that? All the people shook with fear. What they shook with fear from is hearing the Ten Commandments, and particularly the last of the Ten Commandments. The thing that happens right before they shook with fear at the peals of thunder was the reading of the last commandment. And the last commandment is, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his servant, man or woman, or his ox or his donkey or anything that is his. The last commandment. Now, to understand the, where the commandments fit into this, we have to go back to Girard for a second, uh, assuming by the way, that his categories are roughly appropriate for this. Girard says what gives rise to this, this crisis within the community that finally leads to the sacrificial event is what he calls, he uses the word mimetic, meaning imitative. And he uses it with respect to desire, rivalry, and violence. He talks about mimetic desire meaning that I learn what is desirable from my environment. I see that I discover something is desirable because I see somebody else desiring it. Uh, I notice that there's only one item left in the sale. This is in that little booklet I wrote. There's only one item left on the sale table and I notice somebody is interested in it. And I, suddenly I become a little more interested in it. Or I notice uh, that the girl I thought was kind of cute, the uh, quarterback of the football team thinks she's cute too, or whatever, you see. Uh, that desire is mimetic, that, we, that there is a kind of kinetic energy released by mimetic desire. Unfortunately, it leads immediately to mimetic rivalry, as you can see from both of those little simplistic examples I just gave. And mimetic rivalry begins to generate the sociodrama. And the sociodrama eventually reaches the boiling point, and the, the polarization occurs, and the victim happens. So this is, I'm not, I won't go into an elaborate thing, but mimetic desire, mimetic rivalry, mimetic violence, and the social chaos that results in the victimization. Now that's the sort of short course. Gerard's book on it is 300 pages long. So the point of the Hebrew Decalogue in, in Exodus 20 is that Moses comes down the mountain and he says, "We're going to be in history in a new way." And we can't be in history in a new way unless we start from the very beginnings with a new way of doing things. And if you read the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments that are familiar to us are the, are the Ten Commandments from Exodus 20. If you read them in light of Girard's analysis of culture, you see how they are designed to break down the systems that might lead to the sacrificial crisis. You don't steal. You don't lie. You don't commit adultery. You don't murder. If we're going to try to start a civilization, a start a cultural movement that is not premised on periodic rituals of victimization, we will have to cut down on that mimetic rivalry, mimetic desire, mimetic rivalry, because it eventually leads there. So we shall, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. And finally, the commandment that, that in the text leads right into fear and trembling is the one that goes right into the human heart. 
you may not even covet. Now that, for the setting, that, Martin Buber said, these things did not, were not discovered at the writing desk. Moses has, uh, understands something by human nature. It's not enough that you don't steal or commit adultery. You must not even covet, which is to say that it all starts with mimetic desire. That's something in your heart. You can't do it anymore because it goes in the direction of the sacrificial Christ. Now, that's a stunning confirmation of Girard's analysis of culture formation. If we're going to do it differently, you can't covet. Easier said than done. I, I agree. But it's astounding that it's there, you see. A little bit later on, right after the Decalogue, we get the following passage. You must give me your firstborn of your sons. You must do the same with your flocks and herds. The firstborn must remain with its mother for seven days. On eighth day, you must give it to me. And here again, we get the unadorned, primitive thing. Right here on this altar, please, on the eighth day, the firstborn. So the text creates ambivalence, as though we're not quite sure which, thing, which way this thing go, goes. Are we still going to be sacrificing people on the altar or not? Moses clearly is trying to avoid that. But culture requires shared cultural experiences, liturgies. We become a community because we participate in liturgies together. Liturgies with quotation marks. Moses is now going to preside at a liturgy, which is going to use a animal substitution instead of a human victim. But let's remember, by the way, you know the Greek tragedy is based on the Dionysian cult ritual, which was an elaborate frenzy, which the play becomes, followed by the sacrifice of the god, the substitute for the god, the human substitute for the god. So there's, there's also a Greek version of the same dilemma. Moses is now going to use the animal victim in place of the human victim. But imagine what it's like to witness a human victimization. If you lived in Saudi Arabia, you wouldn't have to imagine. They've been doing it in the last couple of weeks. Yesterday, they beheaded 10 people. Public beheading of 10 people. But we're not talking about something that's happened a long time ago. If you're in the presence of a human victimization, it is awesome. It, you cannot but be caught up in it and walk away from it feeling somehow what you share with the people who witnessed it with you is more profound than any difference you might have with them. It, it in a sense, eclipses the differences and makes you a co-conspirator almost in this thing that you have participated in. Well, Moses is now using an animal. Well, an animal is not quite as traumatic. For us, you see, it would be traumatic enough if I laid a lamb across the, uh, the podium here and cut its throat, that'd be traumatic enough. But for the rural nomadic types that are making up the Hebrew movement, uh, it, it doesn't have that kind of trauma, even when it's done in a special setting. However, notice what Moses does. He now has, to, because he's not using a human victim, he has to enhance the liturgy to try to make up what Gerard calls the cathartic quotient. It has to be cathartic enough to really gather us together without a human victim. So he has to enhance the liturgy. This is right after the Ten Commandments. Moses put all the commands of Yahweh into writing, and early the next morning he built an altar at the foot of the mountain with twelve standing stones for the twelve tribes of Israel. Then he directed young 
certain young Israelites to offer Holocaust and immolate bullocks to Yahweh as communion sacrifices. Half of the blood Moses took up and put into basins, the other half he cast on the altar. And taking the book of the covenant, he read it to the listening people, and they said, the, the Ten Commandments, and they said, we will observe all that Yahweh has decreed, we will obey. Then Moses took the blood and cast it towards the people. This, he said, is the blood of the covenant that Yahweh has made with you containing all these rules. So what do you have to do to make up for the fact that he's not sacrificing human victims? Two things. The sacrificial beast is carried up by certain young Israelites. Martin Buber says certain young Israelites means the firstborn. In other words, the ones who would have been sacrificed on the altar are the ones who carry up the animal. And so it enhances the drama, you see, because the very person who belongs on the altar is standing there with the lamb in his arm. It's more alarming. And secondly, and most obviously, he takes this blood and throws it over people. Now, if you're offering a human sacrifice, you don't have to go to those extremes. You get it without the liturgical enhancement. But if you're, using, if you're trying to convene a culture without human victimization, Girard says all cultures are based on human rituals of human victimization at their origin. And what I'm arguing is that here's one that isn't. And because it isn't, he has to enhance the liturgy to try to make animal blood do what human blood would have done with no problem. Okay, now, Moses goes back up the mountain. Right before he goes back up the mountain, he seems to be concerned. All the way along here, it seems as though Moses is concerned that there isn't enough cultural cohesion in this new movement of his. It's still very shaky. As he starts back up the mountain, he says to the people, you have Aaron and Hur remaining with you. If anyone has a difference to settle, let him go to them. That's all he says to them, and he goes up the mountain. Now, what's he concerned about? He's concerned about rivalry breaking out that will be too much for the fragile cultural consensus that he has been able to pull together using his more ethical but more novel ritual. He's afraid that there's not enough cultural cohesion to deal with conflict. So as he goes up, he says, any conflict arises, go to them immediately. Because our little consensus is too fragile to deal with it, maybe. He goes up and comes back down. And of course, the golden calf has been built in the meantime. Here's what the people say. Because Moses' personality was a major factor in holding that cultural consensus together. So when he's gone, it starts to unravel. When the people saw that Moses was a long time before coming down the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, let us make a god to go at the head of us. This Moses is the man who brought us out of Egypt. We do not know what has become of him. And Aaron, I won't, won't go into this. Anyway, Aaron tries to cut a deal. He says, Okay, we'll make it, uh, we'll call it Yahweh. And so they melt gold down and make the golden calf, which is really the, the bull dedicated to the Canaanite god Baal. So it's really a reversion to Baal worship which would have resulted eventually in a sacrificial event, very much like the Dionysian. It's a sexual orgy is what it is. If they got up and amused themselves, the Hebrew text says they amused themselves. It's a euphemism for what they did in the presence of the fertility god, the bull. But the fertility ritual ends in a sacrifice the way the Dionysian one does. So you get here a primitive a reversion to a primitive cult. Moses comes down the mountain and the story says, Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting. 
There is the sound of battle in the camp, he said to Moses. And Moses answered him, No song of victory is this sound, no wailing for defeat this sound. It is the sound of chanting that I hear. Oompa, oompa. <laughs> that's, not, that's not a military sound. That's the sound of people caught up in something, caught up in some primitive cult. As he approached the camp, he saw the calf and the groups dancing. Moses' anger blazed. He threw down the tablets he was holding and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He seized the calf and burned it, grinded it, made the, put it, scattered it on the water and made them drink it. Aaron said, don't be angry with me. You know yourself how prone this people is to evil. They said to me, make us a god to go before our head. This Moses, the man who brought us out of Egypt, we, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, who has gold? And they took it off and brought it to me. I, throw it, I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. There's a little getting yourself off the hook. I threw it into the fire and there it was, he said. He stood at the gate of the camp and shouted, Who is for Yahweh? To me. Come to me. Who is for Yahweh? All the sons of Levi, the tribe of Levi, Levitical families, rallied to him. And he said to them, This is the message of Yahweh, the God of Israel. Gird on your sword, every man of you, and quarter the camp from gate to gate, killing one his brother, another his friend, another his neighbor. The sons of Levi carried out the command of Moses, and of the people, about 3,000 men perished that day. Today, Moses said, you have won for yourselves investiture as priests of Yahweh. This is where priesthood comes from, the people who killed the 3,000. You have won yourself priests of Yahweh at the cost of one of his son, another of his brother, and so he grants you a blessing today. And I would like to know, and I don't know, I would like to know the origin of that text. This is where the priesthood is born. In a crisis, a sacrificial crisis, in which a whole lot of people die. And when it's all put back together again, Israel now has a priesthood. And the priests are those who are willing to kill human victims. Now we get into Moses' compromise. First of all, we have to say, did Yahweh really tell him to do that? Did the God you know tell him to kill 3,000 people? So then we come to the question, what are these stories all about? Is this story telling us about gods? I hope not. It's telling us about us. It's telling us what we do with religion. It's telling us what religion can become if you don't watch it. And it's telling us how addicted we are to how much we need this kind of event to maintain culture. And so this movement that started out to be an ethical movement, an attempt to take culture in another direction, now has 3,000 victims and a priesthood, but it also still has Moses. And Moses is now having to make a deal. He's having to make a compromise. This people, these people are not ready for it. The text said that he took the Ten Commandments, which is a highly ethical, highly demanding set of rules with no uh, ritual, cultic features to them. The first Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 have not, say almost nothing about the cult, the, the, the sacrificial cult. He threw them down and broke them. The story implies, well, he got angry and they, it was a momentary lapse of composure and he it was a mistake. It implies that, but doesn't say that says he threw them down and broke them. I won't quote this, but the following text, after the th slaughter of the 3,000, 
uh, makes the point that those who survived participated in the golden calf cult as much as those who died. So there was as absolutely no moral distinction between those who died and those who survived. The pious want to read this text as a story about how it's a story about God. It's not a story about God. It's a story about the human condition. So the pious would say, well, somehow God understood that, uh, that pagan idolatry is a bad thing and he wiped out those people that participated in it. But the text says that the next morning when Yahweh spoke to the people, he said to them, you have sinned by worshiping the calf. So he's talking to the survivors. He said, you've done it too. There's no moral distinction between the living and the dead. The only distinction is the living and the dead. And so Moses is now trying to salvage out of this mess his original intent, which was to go in a new direction. Shortly thereafter, Yahweh said to Moses, Cut two tablets from stone like the first ones and come up the mountain. I will inscribe on them the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. So this says clearly that he's going to make a Xerox copy at the top of the mountain. So we think, okay. So he takes two tablets like the first and he goes up there and we think he's going to come down with these new ones. And guess what? He comes down with some other ones the ones in Exodus 34. Now, the ones in Exodus 34, most scholars say, well, they're much more primitive, much more ancient. Obviously, we have a redaction problem here where when they put these texts together, they put the, the later one first and the primitive one later. Martin Buber, who's, who's got a real eye for these things, says, no, I don't think so. I don't think so. He says, I think the first one was the mosaic one, pure and simple. And the second one, was the compromise that Moses had to make. Because the second one is, is totally concerned with the cult. It's concerned with how you worship God, the cultic arrangements. It's not concerned with the ethical business. It's concerned with how you maintain the religious cult. And even when it's anti-cultic, it's sacrificial. For instance, it says, take care. Now, we've come a long way from the thou shalt not moral high ground of the first Decalogue. Take care you make no pact with the inhabitants of the land you're about to enter, or this will prove a pitfall at your feet. You are to tear down their altars, smash their standing stones, and cut down their sacred poles. Well, you're to eliminate their sacrificial cult and them. It's a very primitive text. What it seems to indicate is that Moses comes down after this horrible event of the death of 3,000, he strikes a compromise. We're going to have to have a cult. We're going to have to have a sacrificial cult. And we're going to have to maintain it carefully. Because if we don't, 3,000 more may die. We're going to have to learn how to maintain a cult of animal sacrifice that has the cathartic power of human sacrifice that'll keep us together. So it's almost as though Moses is saying, the last thing I came out of Egypt to do is monkey around with the religious sacrificial cult. But we're stuck with it. This is a journey through history as well as whatever else, and at this moment we're stuck with it. So he brings down the second Decalogue. And at that moment, the book of Exodus begins to become preoccupied with maintaining the sacrificial cult, the, an the cult of animal sacrifice, which became the centerpiece of the religious life of the Hebrew people. And you go from the book of Exodus to the book of Leviticus and you hardly you turn the page and you hardly know you've left one and are into the other. <coughs> Preoccupied with the details of cultic life. But let me quote what Girard says in another context and I think it will make us appreciate a little bit what may be going on in the early stages of the Hebrew movement. 
Gerard says, the antagonists have been sobered and thoroughly frightened. From now on, they will do everything possible to keep from relapsing into reciprocal violence. Moreover, divine anger has taught them that preventative measures are necessary. Wherever violence occurs, a prohibition is proclaimed. The prohibitions of primitive peoples display a knowledge of violence and its ways that surpass modern comprehension. The reason is clear. The prohibitions are dictated by violence itself, by the violent manifestations of a previous crisis, and they are fixed in place as a bulwark against similar outbursts. Not only the prohibitions, but the cult itself, the cult of animal sacrifice. Okay. So let's move along here a little bit. I want to get to this. The priesthood is now in place. The priesthood is now has the job of servicing a cult of animal sacrifice, which will keep us together, but will not spill over into human sacrifice. And they get good at it. They're the ordained experts. They're the, the boys in the back room. You know, Their job is to create liturgies that are gripping, that will continue to keep us a people. And they're good at it. Here's an instance of how good they are. This is at the culmination of one liturgy. Then Aaron raised his hands before the people and blessed them. Having thus performed the sacrifice for sin, the Holocaust and the communion sacrifice, these are all animal sacrifices, he came down and entered the tent of meeting with Moses. Then they came out together to bless the people, and the glory of Yahweh appeared to the whole people. A flame leaped forth, from before Yahweh and consumed the holocaust and the fat that was on the altar. At this sight, the people shouted for joy and fell on their faces. Now that's an impressive liturgy. Nobody can quibble with what the priests have been able to pull off. Something, and it's shouted and fell on their faces and the flame leapt up and consumed the holocaust. That's pretty impressive. They're using only animals, so the mosaic Spirit has been able to use even this cultic stuff to survive. You see, it's been able to, you know, kind of give the devil his due in terms of the animal sacrifice and still keep from reverting. But there's always the problem. Here's another liturgy, identical liturgy. Here's how another one ends. Same liturgy. Nadab and Abihu, sons of Aaron, each took his censer, the little incense censer, and put fire in it and incense on the fire, and presented unlawful fire to Yahweh. That's read back into the story. Fire which he had not prescribed for them. Then from Yahweh's presence a flame leaped out and consumed them, and they perished in the presence of Yahweh. And Moses said to Aaron, That is what Yahweh meant when he said, In those who are close to me I show my holiness, and before all the people I show my glory. Aaron remains silent. Now what's happened? Aaron's two sons, who are priests, have been officiating at the liturgy. And suddenly it got out of control. And they are sacrificed. They are pushed into the fire. The story doesn't tell that. But I, but I think it's fairly clear that's what happened. And immediately Moses comes on the scene and theologizes the event. He says, wait a minute, Aaron, let me explain that. That's what Yahweh meant when he said, and those who are close to me I show my holiness, and before all the people I show my glory. And by the way, they lit their censers from the wrong fire. That's why. 
and Aaron remained silent. The father of the two people who were just sacrificed in the liturgy. It's the one who might avenge the death of the sacrificed one that you've got to pay attention to. And that's Aaron. And immediately it's theologized. Wait a minute, Aaron. That was God willed that. And then everybody says, well, why? They said, well, let's look through here, book of Leviticus here. Let's see, it must have been something about a censer. They had censers in their hands. Let's see how you light your censer. Ah, here it is. They lit their censer from the wrong fire. Post hoc ergo propter hoc. Right? You go, sure, it was, you go back and say, oh, it must have been that. It must have been some little thing in the liturgy. It's one of the rubrics. And see how fear-ridden it is? If you make a little mistake, it becomes human sacrifice. And when you read the book of Leviticus, it seems like the most boring book in the Bible. It is. But if, then if you realize what they're trying to do, it becomes a little more interesting. What they're trying to do is to maintain their cultural cohesion by substituting animals for human victims. So that they go right up to the threshold to get the, the cathartic potential, but avoid spilling over. And occasionally it spills over. And when it does, they theologize it. And then they go back and amend the rules. It's after this, I would say, that they say, well, let's see, we've got to be careful about how we light our censers. Two priests died with censers in their hands. And the next day the newspaper says, two priests died with censers in their hands. So a committee of priests is now assigned to rewrite the, the rubrics on uh, how you do the censer deal. I'm being playful, but you understand what's happening here. How do you create the cathartic potential without it spilling into human sacrifice? A few chapters later in Leviticus, a, a new chapter begins this, with these words. After the death of the two sons of Aaron, who died through offering unlawful fire to Yahweh, Yahweh spoke to Moses, and here's what he said. Institute the scapegoat ritual. Now, isn't that interesting? Now, just as an aside, it's at, when the sacrificial cult comes into operation in the post-Exodus Hebrew community, it's at that moment that the preoccupation with sin becomes noticeable. Now, most people would say, well, they got interested in sin and therefore they invented the sacrificial cult. I think it's the other way around. The sacrificial cult, because it is this attempt to enhance it to a certain point but not beyond, gets preoccupied with detail. And it becomes very fear-ridden. What if we make a mistake, light our sensors from the wrong fire, and it becomes this other thing? We can't do that. It be, and so, very fear-ridden. And then, what if one of us goes too close and we've committed a sin? And Yahweh snatches us like that. So the sacrificial cult produces the preoccupation and fear of sinfulness, not the other way around. Because you can never quite be sure you've got all your bases covered. So after the death of the sons of Aaron, Yahweh said to Moses, now how did Yahweh say to Moses, Moses, from like that? No, Moses is trying to figure out what to do. This is what's happening. Moses is saying, my God, we tried. We've been trying to gather ourselves together without human victimization, and it most dramatically failed recently. What other innovations do we need to prevent that from happening? And Yahweh spoke to him. Same way Yahweh speaks to me and you. He said, I know what we'll do. 
we'll have a scapegoat ritual. And we'll load up all our sins, all of those things that may make us so desperately anxious that we push the priest into the fire. We'll load all those up onto a goat, drain away some of that anxiety periodically so that we don't become a human sacrificial cult. So the whole point of this exercise is to say the things that are most off-putting about the Hebrew text, animal sacrifice, the, Le the book of Leviticus, is really the dramatic story of a people trying to avoid human victimization. Now, the irony is that we didn't even know it was something to avoid. We thought everybody had avoided it. We said, hey, there's no big deal. Here's these people going through these elaborate contortions trying to avoid what we didn't even know was to be avoided. And the reason we didn't know it was to be avoided is because only they are candid about its existence. When you look elsewhere, it's camouflaged in myth. It says that Cadmus sowed the teeth, and they sprang up and fought. And when enough of them had died, they built a city. Or that Romulus killed Remus when he crossed his boundary line. Or whatever, some other version. The other stories have it so camouflaged in myth that we don't even know it's something to be avoided. Gerard says what the Bible and the Gospel does is that it uncovers what's been hidden since the foundation of the world, the need for victims, the dependence of culture on victims. So that's what makes these stories so strange, because we don't understand what all the fuss is about, because we've been inoculated by the myth. And this is not, these are not myths. There are mythological elements in these stories, but they're demonstrably going in the other direction. They get accused of being violent because they're not covering up violence. They admit to it. They kill 3,000, they say, well, we killed 3,000. There's a little added mythological feature, which is God told us to, but it's not one that, if you have your eyes open, it's not one that's terribly convincing. Before it's all said and done, there is the following injunction at the end of the book of Leviticus. Yahweh says this, you must not hand over any of your children to have them passed through the fire of Molech, nor must you profane the name of God in this way, I am Yahweh. Now, Yahweh's not wasting his breath speaking in a vacuum. Clearly, what's happened already at the end of the book of Leviticus is that there's been a reversion. Passing your child through fire is a euphemism for sacrificing them on the altar, burning them on the altar. It's happening. Many places in the Hebrew text, you get this, they sacrifice their children on the altar. But in every instance, the Hebrew texts are arguing against it. They admit to it. They say, we did it. But Yahweh told us not to do it. The mythological text said, what? Did what? Now, there's some of that here, you see. The flame leapt out and consumed them. They must have lit their censers from the wrong fire. But it's not very convincing if you have your eyes open. And then along comes this, which says, no, you can't offer your children on the altar. One more bizarre, terrible text, and then we will get into the solution. This is the problem. This is groping in the early stages, groping with a solution. Let's do it with a goat or a lamb instead of a person. That's groping with a solution. But later on, in the Hebrew Scriptures and in the Gospels, we get to something else. But one more bizarre story before we end up. Israel had settled... At Shittim, the people gave themselves over to debauchery with the daughters of Moab. These invited them to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down before the Moabite gods. 
With Israel thus committed to the Baal of Peor, the anger of Yahweh blazed out against them. And Yahweh said to Moses, now see if this is the God you know. Yahweh said to Moses, take all the leaders of the people, impale them for Yahweh, here in the sun. Then the burning anger of Yahweh will turn away from Israel. Take all the leaders, impale them in the sun, and I'll relent. Moses said to the judges in Israel, every one of you must put to death those of his people who have committed themselves to the Baal of Peor. A man of the son of Israel came along, bringing a Midianite woman with him into his family, under the very eyes of Moses and the whole community of the sons of Israel, as they wept at the door of the tent of meeting. So as they're gathered together, they look over, coincidentally, and guess what they see? A Hebrew man coming back with a Moabite woman. Right in the midst of this thing about how the Baal of Peor is winning allegiance from our people because of these Moabite women. And then they look over here. Watch out. Then when he saw this, Phineas the priest, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, stood up and left the assembly. He seized the lance, followed the Israelite into the alcove, and there ran them both through, the Israelite and the woman, right through the groin. And the plague that had struck the sons of Israel was arrested. In the plague, 24,000 of them had died. And we didn't hear about plague. Plague is something that causes 24,000 people to die in a hurry. More likely to be human cause than natural cause. Yahweh spoke to Moses and said, Phinehas the priest, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, has turned my wrath away from the sons of Israel because he was the only one among them to have the same zeal I have. For this I did not make an end in my zeal to the sons of Israel. Proclaim this, therefore. To him I now grant my covenant of peace. For him and for his descendants after him, this covenant shall ensure the priesthood forever. Phineas gets to be a priest, he and his people forever, because he did that. In reward for his zeal, for his God, he shall have the right to perform the ritual atonement over the sons of Israel. The story goes on. Yahweh spoke to Moses and said, Harass the Midianites and strike them down, for they have harassed you with guile in the, in the Peor affair and the affair of Cosby, that was the woman's name, their sister, the woman who was killed the day the plague came to an end. This is an awkward, primitive, horrible text, uh, but it shows how this, it shows a moment very much like the two British soldiers took the wrong turn and happened to come into the presence of a very agitated mob and were victimized. And the end of that story says, and the funeral resumed without further incident. Order is restored. Phineas grabs the lance, corners these two people, and disembowels them, and order is restored. Now, if that tells you anything about Yahweh, then I don't know what this book is all about. But it definitely tells us something that we do not wish to know about ourselves. And that's one of the revelations this book has to offer, is it tells us something about ourselves so that we can go in a different direction. Now, the person who wrote that, in all likelihood, believed in the bottom of his heart that it told about Yahweh. But you and I have to make a decision. 
What's it tell us about? It can either tell us about nothing, it can tell us about Yahweh, or it can tell us about us. I think those are the only choices. So if it tells us about Yahweh, then you know we might as well uh, throw in the towel. If it tells us about nothing, we might as well shut the book and pick up another more interesting one. If it tells us about ourselves, we're on to something. 